0: came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made
1: disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response.
2: Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place.
3: Hello and welcome. My name is Jason Von Medding.
2: And I'm Xenia Chmutina.
3: This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen.
2: Thank you for tuning in. Hey Xenia. Hey Jason. How are you?
3: Good. Hello everybody. Welcome to the final episode of season eight of Disasters Deconstructed. Woohoo! Woo!
2: Woohoo! Season eight. We've done it.
3: Yeah, we're coming up to four years soon. Oh. Imagine
2: are we having a birthday party
3: we should right
2: yeah like i mean this year we didn't have christmas party.
3: we had an episode but no party
2: i know so we need a birthday party okay let's do that yeah i'll bring a cake
3: okay and then we just sit i'll I'll make a cake too
2: excellent well we need to make the same cake right and like put candles and stuff
3: okay okay another tradition we're very good with traditions
2: that's going to be a really good birthday party. Yeah. We can, of course, live stream it, but I think it might be a little bit too much for our listeners.
3: <laughs> well, if the Christmas parties are anything to go by. I mean... <laughs> the Christmas
2: parties are too much for me.
3: I'll be honest yeah. with you.
2: <laughs> but anyway, it's been a really fun season, as always.
3: It has intense. A lot of conversations have been serious, <laughs> but we had a lot of fun too.
2: Yeah, an interesting set of guests as well. Mm. So yeah, thank you all so much for joining us this season. I guess for me, it's been really cool to talk about solidarity because of course we've been thinking about it and writing about it. So I'm glad we've managed to unpack it a little bit further.
3: It's I think been central to a lot of things that we're working on. I find it helpful, like even in the some of the projects that I'm involved in communities mm-hmm. here to draw on some of the things that we've learned with alongside recent Yes, just integrating that into stuff I'm doing in community stuff in the Mm -hmm. classroom as well, just brings a lot of opportunity to challenge like what people, the systems that they're operating within that are really very individualistic and promote competition and selfishness and to say, well, hold up, like there's a different way to operate, different way to live your life that is better for everybody.
2: For sure. I'm glad we also got to talk about kind of solidarity and research a little bit and write about it. And uh, as always, right, we like to talk about papers that haven't been <laughs> published or properly written yet. But yeah, it's the conversation that I'd like to continue and to think more about. But anyhow, we'll talk more about the conversations we've had later in this episode. And now I have the question that I ask you every season, right? So, what's the most popular episode by download? Oh, how are the stats looking?
3: So we appreciate everybody for subscribing and sharing our episodes when they come out. We really value like the base of listeners that we have that download every episode. And I think that's what we see generally every season is the kind of 500 or so episodes that get downloaded during the season. They're all pretty similar this season in terms of popularity if anything the special episodes this season have been maybe more widely shared the episodes in arabic on the turkey syria earthquake which are probably a very different audience than our episodes are downloaded in the normal season by the next season usually the previous season has another 500 or so downloads on each episode so that's how we're looking yeah
2: yeah nice oh
3: great we appreciate everybody thanks for continuing to support us it's and making it like worthwhile creating content. I mean, if yeah. nobody listened-
2: <laughs> still do it. for us. Yeah. I, yeah it no. would
3: still be a viable option, I think, even if there was no <laughs> listeners. But yeah, we're,
2: we're glad we do have listeners. I, I normally I don't have like a favorite episode in the season because I love them all. And I don't have favorite episode in this season, but I do love a favorite teaser
3: <laughs>
2: because of the image.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I know yeah, what you're right? talking about.
2: You know what you're talking about. I wonder, people, if you have a favorite teaser. So do let us know which one is yours. I do have regrets, though, in the season. and that. Oh, no? We, what is that? Well, we didn't have the audience participation oh, episode. Yeah. Man, that's my favorite. But, man, it's been chaotic, right? 2023 so far has been... Whew,
3: crazy. Oh, well, yeah. You've had some new experiences.
2: Yeah, <laughs> a, a few <laughs> new experiences. It's been a little bit busy, but we talked yeah. About
3: you becoming the parents on the podcast before
2: we must have done. Although now I have You're baby not. brain, I wouldn't be too surprised. I don't remember baby things brain. anymore. Yeah, baby brain. Congratulations!
3: But,
4: thank you,
2: thank yeah. you. Maybe he'll come and join us and do the
3: ah mother ah, ah, that kind of noise. You get a recorder out and just get some sound effects that we can use
2: sometimes i talk to him when we were, when i look at our papers and stuff and i would say oh look reviewer 2 said this and he would say oh i was like exactly right so even the baby understands that
3: wow reviewer 2 could be a dick right <laughs> get them started young they got to i know gotta learn the whole culture around peer review for sure. <laughs>
2: culture of peer review this is going to be the first thing yeah so it's a pity we didn't manage the audience participation episode however The next season is going to be all about audience participation. And I'm really excited about the format of the next season. Jason, do you want to tell people what we're planning?
3: Yeah, I think since we started the podcast, probably one of the things that we intended but never really worked out for us was to have more stories that were grounded in communities that are affected by... Disproportionate disaster risk, and we had lots of ideas early on about having field reports from different folks who worked in communities, and some of that was probably derailed by the fact that lots of us couldn't work in the ways we usually do in our research mm. for a couple of years with COVID. Partly, maybe our ideas were too ambitious because we're so strongly on the academic side as well. Yeah. And our network of contacts is definitely more skewed that way than practitioners. But we wanted to really go for this and try to bring our listeners more stories from communities. So in season nine, we're doing um, a full season, but we're going to break it into mini series that are located in communities where we or Our friends are doing work and I think it'll be really exciting instead of having like more like a talk show format that we usually have with interviews, it'll be more like merging together lots of different content from like the sights and sounds and stories of places. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's the plan. We're going to bring three different locations around the world to you and stories from those places with the people that live there. I think it's going to be really exciting. Oh, it's
2: going to be super cool. Yeah. I can't wait. I'm really excited. And I hope close people will join us in, in telling us story, so that we can continue with the storytelling later on beyond season nine. But anyway, let's get back to this season and talk about the highlights.
3: So the most prominent theme in this season, and indeed how we framed it all at the beginning was around solidarity and what that means in terms of relationality among comrades and among people in general and we talked about relations between people who live in these in communities that are disproportionately faced with impacts of disaster we talked about people who work with those communities as practitioners as advocates and definitely as researchers and the ethical issues that emerge from doing research and how people like you and I said, and others in academia or working even in development or humanitarian work can engage mm. ethically and be in solidarity. And so how do we show up? How do we demonstrate solidarity? Mm. How do we engage with people whose struggle isn't our struggle personally? And then we talked a lot in this season about how power. Is manifested and what we can do about it, and how to struggle together against systems that are oppressing folks. Mm. So let's listen to some of the some of the content that reflected this from season eight.
5: There's a way that the neoliberalized notions of self care have overdetermined the es- essential. Function of care as praxis. And part of what I think about with mutual comradeship is the way that it pushed back against hegemonic notions of gender because there were men who were engaging in forms of care work that are typically feminized, right, that become feminized forms of labor, but also how people engage principal struggle within organizations, not to collapse them, not to so, quote unquote center a particular discourse, but to hold those organizations or those parties to their ethical standard. I think the 50, 60 plus years of state repression, if not more, have really wreaked havoc on the ethical dimensions of how we need to relate to each other in struggle. And the same thing with joy. I hate this like joy and rest as revolutionary. It's like, no, these are not objectively revolutionary, but they are foundational to revolutionary struggle, right? Because Mm -hmm. it can't just be like gray jumpsuits and turnips. You know, (laughs) there has to be more to it. And so we have to be Mm -hmm. very careful about the liberal reductionism of joy and rest as revolution. That revolution has to have a joyful and a restful aspect to it because that's how you have somebody like Esther Cooper Jackson or Louise Thompson Patterson who were long distance revolutionaries.
6: I'm trying to challenge myself to also be hopeful about positive things coming from that form of recognized vulnerability, but also trying to be okay with things really not working out. The other side of vulnerability is really just connecting with people and realizing that connection that you've invested in and in making have the capacity to harm you and sometimes that means all right you got to disengage and be completely out of it and sometimes it means you really have to develop the practice of naming that harm and then maybe being open to trying it again <laughs> maybe less harm happening after that or hopefully no harm I felt very sensitive lately to even the prospect of harm of rejection of disappointing or failing each other even within my own communities that I sit in here, and not demonizing people in that process as well, because that ensures that nothing productive is really going to come out of that. So it feels like a weird place of sitting with complexity where I personally don't feel like I have any neat frameworks anymore that define the right and wrong power relationships that I should be having. And it's just like, okay, how do we all recognize that this is just an experiment and we're all just trying to do our best?
7: We might think that the impact of theater or performance and contributions to society, it might not be seen immediately. But when audience members see the mothers performing on stage, they're reminded of their pain and their trauma. And they can also resonate with their depression and the helplessness that they felt when they were watching the live feed of the fairy sinking. And I really do think that audience members will be encouraged to pay more attention to the special investigation. The families are still struggling for justice. And by watching a performance where the families are speaking about the aftermath in their own words, and their own writing, I do think that it actually becomes a very valuable kind of public memory archive for the people because those kind of stories, those kind of testimonies are rarely visible, rarely seen in mainstream Korean media. The Mothers of the Victims have their own theater troupe and they perform on stage telling the stories about their children and the aftermath of the disaster. In many ways, I think they're actually expanding motherhood politics in South Korea because They're stepping outside of conventional mourning, and they're trying to transform their grief into political activism. I see them as active justice warriors, resistance fighters who are speaking for their children and also expressing positive energy along with their activism.
4: There's power dynamics across disciplines and across generations among scholars There's power dynamics between academic researchers and the communities that they work alongside. There's power dynamics weighted by legacies of imperialism. I think that to pluralize the kind of positions and voices that we have participating in the production of academic knowledge, we're foolish not to, just in terms of conceptual richness. And so you could say that we need to make a place at the table and pathways there for scholars in the global South, just to keep us from being dense. They bring in different ways of thinking about things. And that's a little bit different than saying they deserve a place because it's unfair, which is also true. And I also think that the process of learning to listen across those differences unsettles our established methodologies. And so actually open space, not for just new content coming in but fundamentally new frames and epistemologies it's such a challenge to shift that around in collaborating with communities i've been fascinated and really energized by the increasing investment in community engaged research and the idea that we have something to learn from communities which is certainly true
2: I think all of these teasers that we've listened to just now, they highlight that the relationship between people is the core of solidarity, right? In that solidarity isn't about proving that we could be kind to each other if we wanted to, right? It's not about providing hope or providing charity to oppressed people, but it's more about supporting projects for social change, even if you as an individual are not affected by, by, by that oppression. And we talked a lot about this throughout the season. And to me, I guess what kind of strikes me most in all of these conversations is that solidarity is not a kind of a pre-given. It is not natural. Solidarity is definitely socially constructed, right? And it's definitely institutionally embedded. And it always, therefore, relies on this language of morality, maybe kind of language of justice, language of Ethics that derives from a broader social vision that we, and I use we in quotation marks here, share with each other, right? And that vision stands in contrast between us and them and that is the foundation of solidarity and then of course come the rituals and the symbols and rhetorical appeals right and vocabularies like marches and banners and picket lines but all of that sort of performative lines of solidarity whereas still still the foundation of it is the moral values that that we need to think about if we are to stand in solidarity
3: yeah that's a good point i think There's a need for a deep political thinking or action orientation that can facilitate solidarity, especially in a society which is Mm anti-solidarity. And so, like you said a minute ago, that's not natural. And I think to some degree, we all have the natural capacity for solidarity, but also for selfishness. And... It comes down to what is the dominant orientation or way of relating in our society that we are living within or within our organization and if that society for me like living in the us that society is fundamentally oriented towards competition and selfishness and self-preservation and like we've seen in research a lot of time, when we see acts of solidarity, it's often when that system is disrupted and we have a lot of disaster research, which shows that in different instances where people come together, where they share, they see sometimes for the first time their shared future together to try to respond to a crisis mm. and act in this certain way. And it comes naturally at that time, but then it's like, okay, The panic is on behalf of those who are at risk of losing power in that crisis. So we have this elite panic. And we talked about that in the show before. I think that there's been some really interesting conversations in the season. Getting to that, like how much of this is part of just being human? Mm. How much of it is about the systems that we live within and how we've been socially programmed and also just trying to survive and trying to Be well.
2: No, for sure. And I think what you're alluding to here is this idea of collective power that maybe we don't really accept, right? Because we don't really have good examples, or we think that we don't have good examples historically of collective power that suggests solidarity, and with that the phrase united we stand, divided we fall, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of solidarity is grounded on the idea of unity and cooperation. And this actually This leads us to the second theme, which was really prominent in this season, and that is the theme of status quo. Inevitably, we talked a lot about status quo, and it became clear to me again as we were unpacking this topic, and we've been talking about status quo from season one. I think we've probably mentioned it in every episode, right?
3: Well. (laughs) That, that makes a lot of sense because we started the podcast when we hosted IREC as well, and that was oh yeah, resistance
6: yeah yeah
3: that was all about resisting status quo. So it makes total sense why this has been a theme for us yeah. in the podcast.
2: Yeah, I think the reason we were talking about status quo in this particular season quite a lot is because it is actually so difficult to resist the status quo, not because people necessarily like it right or agree with the status quo but because we know what the status quo is there is only one status quo this is how we currently live whereas changing or resisting the status quo would result in a million of possibilities in a million of unknowns like we literally don't know what is beyond the status quo right what is the next path and that will perhaps lead to new struggles and create new solidarities but that unknown it's really quite scary. So let's listen to a couple of more ideas.
0: I think a lot of people making interventions into this to try and think of the positive aspect of vulnerability, folks like Judith Butler and others, they're doing political philosophy. They're trying to come up with new strategies for political action, right? And that's not necessarily my job as as an anthropologist or as a theorist or as an applied scholar, but to really call our attention to what is vulnerability and how we ought to work with communities and have communities lead with their own cultural logics of the good. I think that's an important part of transforming and making interventions into this. The state tends towards very statist logics that standardize and regulate spaces and population. And so while I maintain an optimism of the will, like Antonio Gramsci, I find myself really haunted by this pessimism of the intellect. Solidarity is a grassroots thing. The state is never going to fund the revolution. So that's the challenge of trying to build grassroots coalitions and strategies for solidaristic, anti-disastrous action.
8: The role that art generally has to play in organizing people is to foster a sense of community, which is what art does really well. It communicates on an emotional level. And when you have a bunch of people together in a physical space and they're all Listening to music and singing together, dancing together, however, they're expressing their togetherness, they are expressing it in one form or another at a musical event, whether it's a quiet, folky kind of musical event or more upbeat kind of thing involving a drummer and a band. It's still a communal kind of experience that is really important for people to have that sense of community that sense that they're not just a bunch of individuals on Twitter they're actually part of a movement and they're they're out there in physical spaces that's i think more important now than ever to actually get people away from their computers and into the real world and into physical spaces interacting with each other and music is one of those things that can really foster that and then when the music is speaking about what's going on around us and what's happening in the world and politically relevant That is powerful, too, because then people get an education and they have more of a sense of community. Not only are they sharing a musical event together or a communal event together, a cultural event, but they're Mm. actually sharing ideas and they're hearing their own ideas sung back at them. That's the power of songs. Hopefully you're Mm. boiling their thoughts down into two or three minutes in a way that's really potent.
1: Anarchism refuses, I think, to prioritize freedom over equality, or vice versa. We're often told, right, that these things can't be elevated to the same degree. Either you prioritize freedom and you'll be more of a liberal type, or communism or socialism prioritizes equality over freedom. Well, anarchists call the BS on that. They'll argue that, absolutely not, both can be elevated just as much, and in fact, if they're not, it's problematic, because it's either too authoritarian or not egalitarian enough. Against that also, it's the observation that comes from anarchism that the current order is not working. The current order might be efficient at leading us as a human community to produce and consume more, but it's not very good at making sure this is distributed equally or fairly. It's not very good at mutual aid. It's not very good, therefore, at preserving even our planet, our home. And so the sooner we pay attention to the way we organize politics and economics and experiment with alternatives,
9: people who have been through disaster, express solidarity or feel solidarity because they have the shared experience of going through disaster. To me, that idea that solidarity happens and that what we often call post-disaster altruism happens not because we feel sorry for each other or because we feel a duty to help or because we're being nice, but because fundamentally the fight to survive of our neighbor is also the fight to survive of ourselves. And we recognize that inherent connection, that inherent similarity between us and our neighbor, even really broadly speaking around the world, seems to me to be the really key thing that you don't get when you talk about social networks or social capital or emergent networks, right? Those are so dry and academic and divorced from the experience of struggle. But of course, survival in disaster after disaster is struggle. It's struggle just as struggle after the plant closes, is struggle.
3: Yeah, so I think in these teasers from the season, we get some key ideas around how there's possibilities to come together and build relationships out of political struggle, out of ideology, out of vulnerability, I dare say to actually resist dominant systems that are oppressive. But we also talked a lot in the season about the different ways that interests align and for people that are very different, who have lots of different agendas, lots of different key interests and organizing principles and the challenges that are so common when people aren't all the same. (laughs) Mm. Because we move in society that has lots of dominant ways of being and thinking and relating in ways where we just conform and all become the same and relate in the same ways. And then there's such an uncertainty that comes with challenging that and saying we don't want to do things that way because everybody has all these amazing but different ideas that maybe aren't mm. all compatible or mm. can't all be implemented, and so that's sometimes I think where we really have challenges because it's hard to build some sort of consensus about alternatives in these communities that all agree that the status quo is shit. But there's lots of different ideas about ways forward,
2: yeah. And I, I these ideas very often come from dreaming, right? And not in a fairy tale dreaming way, but dreaming as a political act and I don't think we're very good at that we very often when we talk about the resistance status quo we only relate to the things that are clear and understood right in the current reality which then of course reinforces status quo almost and I found this quote by Freire about dreaming which I knew you would like right so let me quote go for so, Freire notes that integral part of the historical social manner of being a person is dreaming. There is no change without dream as there is no dream without hope.
3: Yeah, I think it's something that we're definitely not good at. I think some of us are maybe afraid of it because there's such a strong story Mm. about how utopia is not viable.
2: Right, 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 right. And
3: that's a really strong thing. And I think it's partly just the so-called historical victory of capitalism and like the end of history, that kind of idea. Mm -hmm. And all of you with these utopian ideas about equality and redistribution, like you've lost. And so anybody who's dreaming of an alternative, a lot of folks in society believe that you've already lost. Yeah. And then it's like, well, do we just try to convince people that's just the narrative you've been told and it's not really true and we actually need mm-hmm. alternatives? But I think sometimes we avoid that conversation okay. because it's difficult as soon as you talk about these different visions for future, people are like, oh, you're just thinking of a utopia that isn't possible.
2: Yeah. And that is the easiest answer, right? Kind of something isn't possible, but how do we know what isn't possible until we try?
3: Yeah, but we often fall back into believing that ourselves, I think. Right, right. And then we settle for incremental change in the system and tweaking the system that is failing everybody because that's more possible or it's more pragmatic.
2: Yeah, and the system is set up to be that way, right? Because the system is keeping us busy with other things, right? With being productive, with being efficient, with, I don't know, earning living and paying mortgages and this and that, right? So there's no time for dreaming. There's no time for getting together. And that's where the hope fails.
3: That's by design. Of course, yeah. Everything is set up to try to make you feel like you failed and to minimize any successful rebellion or revolution or serious change, minimize it as if it's insignificant or co opt it into some tweak to the system. I think our guests this season have helped us to unpack some of the ways in which real change is possible by coming together, by being in relationship, by showing up for people who are different than us and becoming part of their struggle, not in a paternalistic way or even a humanitarian mm. way, but in real relationship and with a commitment to a shared future with other people.
2: But also think it was probably the most kind of optimistic and happy season that we've had because everybody really highlighted why solidarity is so important in everything that we do in research and action in the context of disasters. I guess that's it for the season. We oh. Really hope you enjoyed all the conversations we had. And as always, thank you to all our guests for all your time and for your support. We'll be back in a couple of months with season nine.
3: Exciting. And for anyone who hasn't seen, right, we do have disasters deconstructed in different languages, which is incredible. We have teams producing content in French and in Spanish. If you haven't seen those and you speak those languages or you know people that do please go and check out those podcasts that are affiliated, but we're not actually involved in the production. So Check those out, French and Spanish podcasts, and also the two Arabic language episodes that were produced this year already. If you know anybody that speaks Arabic, you might want to share those episodes with about the Turkey-Syria earthquake. We'd appreciate that. We're looking forward to the year doing some more live streams we hadn't done that for a while so we'll definitely have some live streams coming your way and i noticed another thing that we haven't really talked too much about books of late maybe it's because we haven't been doing live streams but we talked about books for a whole season but we haven't really this season talked about books too much except with some of the authors that were on the show right
2: yeah, but that does not mean that we haven't been reading. Like I guess yeah. you and I talked about the books, but yeah. we haven't discussed it. So yeah, okay. We did a suggestion for book group live stream. So come on, people, tell us what we should read together, and we will.
3: That's a good way to close. Thanks everybody for joining us this season. Bye. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast.
2: You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Disasters Deacon.
3: The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe.
2: And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you.
3: You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.